You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When I think of the word airborne, I think of the 1995 movie Outbreak. We're in deep shit, Billy. The virus is aerosolized. What are you talking about? When Dustin Hoffman tells Morgan Freeman that the Ebola-like virus that they're dealing with has mutated and suddenly gone... It's gone airborne. Airborne. What? It spreads like the flu. You got 19 dead, you got hundreds more infected, and it's spreading like a brush fire. You got to isolate the sick, and I mean really isolate them, Billy. We got to get everybody else back into the houses. We got to keep them there. And maybe because of that movie, the idea of any virus being airborne scares the shit out of me. But that's just a movie. It's not real life. This pandemic, though, that's real. And the question of whether or not this coronavirus is airborne, well, it's more complicated than you probably think. The word airborne, it means something different to different people, and it means something different to different types of scientists. So how does that work? And what does that mean for transmission? Today on the show... We have some major unanswered questions about how this coronavirus moves from one person to another, starting with the word airborne. I'm Ariel Dimros. This is Reset. There's a lot of conflicting information out there right now about whether or not this novel coronavirus is airborne. As recently as this month, some public health officials have said that it's not airborne. I just need you to confirm this. Is the coronavirus airborne? From what we know, it's not airborne. It's spread by droplets. We certainly don't see any evidence of airborne spread uh, in, based on our local experience. The virus is not airborne. This is very different than infections that are transmitted by the airborne routes, such as measles. Roxanne Kamsey is a science reporter, and she says that we need to take a closer look at this claim. You can't get scared by one word, but you have to know what the word means. If you break it down, it literally just means something's in the air. So if you're coughing into your elbow and and you're catching all that droplet into your elbow, I mean, at some point it was in the air between your mouth and your elbow, but it got caught. I I think that what the mistake is, is to think that something that is airborne is something that as soon as you cough, it's everywhere. Like that's that's just not the way to look at something. So given all that, what exactly does airborne mean? (sighs) So, there is not a great answer to that question. I think that you can take a very simplistic view, which means airborne means something is in the air. I mean, if you were to open the dictionary, that's what it means. And if you were to ask people who are aerobiologists, so the people who study how pathogens spread in the air, they'll say the same thing. They'll say anything that's in the air is airborne. But a lot of virologists, and especially a lot of public health officials, have the idea that something is airborne if it is spread by aerosol and not by droplet. 
now you're wondering, like, what is the difference between droplets and aerosols, right? Yeah, I'm, that is 100% what I'm thinking right now. So traditionally, public health officials, at least recently, have been defining the droplet as something that's like a ball of mucus and virus and salts that is larger than five microns in diameter that you're kind of coughing up or spewing out. And anything smaller than that could be an aerosol that floats around like indefinitely in the air because it's lighter and it's floatier. You know, it's kind of imagine like a feather like floating in the air. Okay, so there are large droplets that can float around in the air and there are fine aerosols that last longer in the air. That's the distinction? Right. And if you trace back where they came up with this, it goes back to these equations from the 1930s where people were trying to figure out like tuberculosis and how it spread. So we're talking about a really antiquated point of view on these things and and hugely arbitrary. Like I asked the WHO, how do you know that this COVID thing is airborne? How do you know it's like only in droplets? And I did not get a good answer from them. So why are some scientists still saying that we don't know if the virus that causes COVID-19 is airborne? Because we don't. I mean, the thing is, is we actually don't have evidence to say whether it's airborne or not in a normal setting. I mean, in settings where people are getting intubated and it's kind of spewing this thing into the air, even the WHO says there's a risk of it being airborne in those situations. But we're operating in an absence of evidence. What I'm getting from you is that there's really no, like, you can't tell me right now, in the context of this interview, you can't tell me right now whether it is or it's not. We just don't know. Exactly. So the people I spoke with who witnessed SARS almost 20 years ago and dealt with that public health disaster, they're saying that we should operate on the precautionary principle that this is more easily airborne than we're saying it is or assuming it is. Because it technically does travel in the air, so it is, quote unquote, airborne. So is this just a language thing? Is it just that most virologists think of something being airborne as being transmitted through fine aerosols as opposed to large droplets? Completely. We're talking about a failure of language, in my opinion. So we're talking about a a word that is failing us because it can't really capture all the nuances of the different situations. So if you're standing in front of an ocean and you feel the splash of the huge droplets of sea spray, Those are pretty big droplets, but it's the wind that's carrying it to your face. So could we not consider those airborne? I think that's what a lot of the people that study this this type of transmission are saying. Why do you think understanding this whole airborne situation when it comes to COVID-19 and the virus that causes it, why do you think that's important? I think it's important to understand how easily transmissible this virus is in the air, first and foremost for public health workers. So if we say, as like the CDC said, it's okay to wear like bandanas in some situations with this if you're like, you know, encountering patients or whatnot. Um, I think that's a problem. I think that we're loosening standards maybe a little too easily because this mantra has been repeated over and over that it's not airborne. What are the top three things that you think people are, are getting wrong right now? I think that the top three things that people are getting wrong right now are that the virus is only transmissible by touch, which is not something that I think we can assume. The second thing that they need to know is that we need to find out information about this before we can understand exactly how airborne it is. I think we have to reserve judgment and and hang on for that. And I, I think that the third thing that people need to know is that they need to be kind of up in arms about getting production of N95 masks, which are 
more effective than a bandana in protecting health workers to increase and that the government should really kind of be stepping up for that. Speaking of masks, there's a question that I know is on a lot of people's minds right now, which is that it's really hard to hear that uh, people who work in medical fields should be wearing masks, these N95 masks, but then to also hear officials say to the public, please don't purchase these, you don't need them. So how do you talk about that issue? How, how do you talk about to the public about this problem? So I'll speak about this issue about whether the public needs to buy masks on a kind of personal level. And that's that I know right now there is a shortage of masks and that the people who need those masks most are doctors, nurses, people on the front lines. And that if you're basically doing the social distancing that you're supposed to be doing right now, you don't need a mask, right? Like if you are Mm. keeping far apart from people and staying at home, like you don't need a mask. Right. So I'm not here to say that masks don't work. I'm just here to say, let's get them to the people who need the most. This whole confusion over the word airborne, whether it's okay to use it, maybe it's a matter of not necessarily using the word airborne, but talking about people coughing and and talking about those kinds of risks a little bit more. And, And in some ways, I would say that that's why we've been told to stay six feet away from people, right? You're so smart. Because actually, as I'm talking to you, like I'm thinking... What if we just didn't use the word airborne at all? Because it just means in the air. So like, what if we started talking about measures that could just be more practical, you know? Right. I mean, I think I think that's probably part of what we're seeing right now. This whole six feet away thing, this whole don't stand next to somebody who's coughing thing. I think unofficially that is a way to talk about the fact that this is transmitted through the air and not just on surfaces. Um, But the word airborne evokes so much anxiety and fear that it is just not even worth using right now because we just don't understand it and and it hasn't been communicated to people properly. Correct. But can I just, I I 100% sign on to what you said, except can I ask you where you think that six feet comes from? Oh, man. Uh, So I am embarrassed that I actually don't know. Does that distance make sense? Well, there's no magic number. That's the thing is like, you know what? Actually, maybe it's great that the public health officials have these cutoffs because at some point you have to decide on something that people can follow, right? But I think the thing to keep in mind is when we're saying six feet away, we're not taking into account like the speed of the wind or the direction that it's blowing in. Exactly. So like, uh, you know what? Here's here's what we've come up with in the course of this conversation. One, let's just ditch the word airborne potentially, right? And two, yeah. let's just stick with the six feet thing for now. Knowing, knowing that scientists have found, you know, five micron droplets can travel up to eight meters when you take into account the thing, that, the fact that you can like project a cloud when you're coughing. So eight meters is 26 feet. When you take into account that you've got this gust of wind coming out of your lungs, it changes the dynamics of how these things flow. Is it always going to travel eight meters? Of course not. So, Roxanne, what do you think is stopping scientists from agreeing on the meaning of the word airborne? I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, I think I think that people cling to what they've been taught and their their interpretation of the jargon. And I mean, would I like to see a summit on the language of the word airborne? For sure. But I just don't see that happening this year, given everything that's happening. Yeah, I mean, any kind of summit right now, any kind of gathering of people seems like a bad idea at this point in time. Roxanne Kamsey is a freelance science journalist. 
Roxanne, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thanks so much. And breathe easy because we are going to get through this. Whether this coronavirus can be referred to as airborne isn't the only question that scientists are still asking right now. That's after the break. This is Reset. Eurovision is here. This year's contest gets underway this week in Malmö, Sweden. But this year's contest comes with a dose of controversy. I'll give you one guess as to what people are mad about. Yes, correct. It's that. Organizers of the Eurovision Song Contest say they are assessing whether Israel's entry breaks the rules on political neutrality. I think it's a shame. I think there's no way that that Israel should be able to participate Pro-Palestinian protesters are taking to the Swedish streets. More than a thousand Swedish artists, including Robin, have called for an Israel ban. Some European politicians are joining them. Charlie Harding from Switched On Pop joins us this week on Today Explained to help us figure out if Europe can sing its way out of this situation. This week on The Gray Area. Professor Diana Posulka and I tackle one of life's biggest questions. Are we alone in the universe? What would it take for you to step off the agnostic ledge and say, yeah, aliens are real? Is it a spacecraft landing on the White House lawn? Well, something that was anomalous in 1952 did fly over the White House. And that's one of those cases that is still weird. That's This Week on the Gray Area, available wherever you get your podcasts. Brian Resnick, you're a senior science reporter for Vox.com. How do you feel about the word airborne when it comes to talking about this coronavirus? Airborne is a very scary word. I know about it from reading about the measles and everyone saying that the measles is one of the most contagious diseases ever known to mankind. And it's because it gets airborne and it can linger in the air. Um, But I also know that the current thinking on coronavirus is that while it may be able to linger in the air for some amount of time under some conditions, it doesn't seem to have that like super viral contagion like the measles. But I know like it's still like a little bit of an open question there. I'm actually so glad that you brought up open questions because that's the entire reason that I wanted to talk to you. Beyond the word airborne, there are a lot of really important unanswered questions that scientists need to answer about COVID-19 and the virus that causes the illness. And so I'm wondering, in your mind... Given your expertise, what are the five most important unanswered questions right now about this virus? Yeah, I've been looking into the unknown questions, and I would rate these as kind of like five on my mind, at least. One is, can people become reinfected? And if so, after how long? Another one is, what are the risk factors for serious illness? It seems like age is one, but then we're also seeing younger people getting, you know, sick in in some very dramatic ways, and we don't really know what makes one person riskier than another. Um, Another big question is the role of children. Um, They don't seem to be getting the diseases as as severely as adults, but yet we need to know the role they have in spreading it. Um, 
the simple infuriating question of how many cases are there? And then maybe the question on everyone's mind is, how does this end and what are the pathways to get there? All right. So let's dig into a few of these questions. The first one, and the one that's really been on my mind personally uh, for a while now, is reinfection. What do we know about whether somebody who's had the virus can get it again? Yeah, so this is an open question. I will say that I have been talking to a virologist about this who who knows her stuff on it. And she was telling me that you, for this family of viruses, coronaviruses, it is known that reinfection can be possible like on the time span of like a year or so. Hmm. You know, there are several coronaviruses. Um, this is just the new one. But there are a few coronaviruses that routinely infect people and they present as the common cold um, in in some cases. And yeah, in those cases, you can become reinfected after like a year or so. But, you know, it is an important question to see what timescale can we expect people to be able to, after they're infected, go out into the world and be immune. Like literally to do this work, you need to wait for people to recover for weeks and months. And then you test Mm -hmm. their blood and see if their blood, you know, provides the immune response to the virus. Also, good news is like that test will exist eventually. We'll eventually be able to test people to see if they have ever had it. And that will be fascinating and not not just fascinating, but useful to know like how many asymptomatic cases were there, how many people had this without really knowing about it. This is going to be the most well-known virus on planet Earth in a year or two. One of the things that you mentioned while you were answering me is also that we still don't know how many cases of this virus there are out there or have been um, so far. So where do things stand there right now? Yeah, so at least in this country, in the United States, testing is not at a place where we can even test all the people who present symptoms, let alone do surveillance testing to see what the prevalence of this is in the population on more of like doing it like as a poll to see, you know, just picking random people and seeing if they have this or not. So yeah, we don't know. And this is kind of what's why we have to react so severely right now in the face of uncertainty. We need a lockdown. Like we're using these, you know, ancient public health tools of just avoiding other people. But then, like, in the future, we could probably figure out how many cases happened, you know, based on the serology, you know, drawing from the blood and seeing. And then we can also figure out, like, a little bit better, like, you know, why are some people getting really severe disease and why some people aren't. Right. So that's actually question number three, right? What are the risk factors that make certain people more vulnerable to this virus? Yeah, this is such, such a key question, especially now in this crucial period where cases seem to be increasing. Um, so the only risk factor that scientists seem really confident with is age. And, you know, the risk factor isn't necessarily for catching d- the disease. The risk factor is for severe disease. But yet we don't know why, like, a young person, like, in their 30s might go down a really severe path and another one wouldn't. If you're starting to read some stories in newspapers about people who have had this virus, some people are debilitated and they like knocked on the floor and they have partners looking after them for two weeks. Other people are having trouble breathing and need to go to the hospital. Other people are just you know, basically fine or maybe like had a fever for a few days. Um, so really understanding the risk factors of like what leads one person to severe disease and brushing with death and another person to not will be so essential to know 
like who we need to protect. There's a lot of little mysteries about this too. Like I think um, more men than women appear to be dying of COVID-19. And then, you know, there are some theories out there or hypotheses, I should say, as to why, but, you know, no one actually knows right now. It could be some behavioral risk factors. It could be some biological. And then also what was brought up to me in a conversation that I had the other day, uh, healthcare workers seem to be getting, they're not getting infected at higher rates than you'd expect for their age, but they are getting sicker than you'd expect for their age. Right, and that might actually have something to do with the amount of virus that they're exposed to, right? But we still don't know. Yeah, no, yeah, that's one idea, but we exactly right. We don't know. So, Brian, where do children come in? How does this virus affect children? And and do we know, do we have a sense of their role in transmission? Yeah, so it seems pretty clear that virus can infect children. It's not like they're immune. Um, But they don't seem to be getting severe diseases in higher rates. Although, as you're starting to see in the news, there do seem to be some exceptions to that. And so here the question is more about like less of the the ability for a young person to get this disease. And and researchers are really curious about like what their role is in spreading it. So usually when you go to the playbook of how to handle a flu outbreak, you close the schools because children are immense spreaders of the flu. You know, they they catch it at home, they go to school, they pass it to all their classmates, right. and suddenly everyone's family has the flu. Um, but if it turns out that, the, the, that with this reduced severity of disease, they don't seem to be spreading it as much, you know, we're starting to look and wonder and to be anxious about how to get it back into normal life again. Maybe if it turns out to be the case that children are not being these super spreader little germ, you know, balls that we usually think them to be, um, then maybe opening schools or allowing more activities for for children to interact with each other will feel better and we'll be able to like kind of monitor that a little bit more closely and to kind of get more um, normalcy back into their lives. Okay, so Brian, question five. How is this going to end? This is the question. So social distancing is something I've been thinking about it as like, you know, when you get an antibiotic and you're told to take it for 10 days, even though you feel better after two, like you really, we need to take this for not more than 10 days, you know, it'll be weeks, if not months of, of because the second you let people out into their normal routines again, this virus will start circulating again. So the real end goal is a vaccine, um, a safe and effective vaccine. And on this, I would say there's some optimism um, I was talking to an NIH researcher the other week who is working on one of the vaccines and said we were actually somewhat prepared for this um, because of SARS, because of MERS. These are other viruses from this family, this coronavirus family. Um, we had been preparing for an outbreak of a coronavirus and researchers at the NIH and other vaccine developers around the world, like, Kind of, they they they've had they have a playbook to go to when it comes to new coronavirus. So scientists all over the world are working on answering these questions, and some have been doing that for for weeks now. So I can imagine that there are people out there right now who might be wondering why don't we have answers to all of these questions yet? So what is important to know about this pandemic that might explain why we don't have answers yet? Or what's important to know about science? I've been getting a real appreciation for how hard epidemiology can be. It's hard because humans are hard and we do so many different things and we go and interact with people in so many different ways. And it's not just our behavior, but it's our biology. And it's just the, like, epidemiology is like where biology, behavior, virology, and, like, society all mesh together and, like, 
you know, the answers, they'll come, but this is new. And it's okay to be like a little afraid of the newness because new scary things are new and scary, but this is a type of science that people know how to do and they're doing it and they're going to keep doing it. And, uh, you know, I just take a deep breath and find a little bit of comfort in that. Brian Resnick is a senior science reporter for Vox.com. Brian, thank you so much. Thanks. If you want to read both Brian Resnick and Roxanne Kamsey's reporting on this, check out our show notes. Now, I've been asking listeners to email us recordings of the challenges and victories they've had while they've been social distancing. And some of those recordings, well, they're pretty eye-opening because they show that really, we're all in this together. Hi, I'm uh, Corey. I'm from Auckland, New Zealand. Hi, my name is Rini, and I'm from Bloomington, Illinois. Hi, my name is Rohan, and I'm a university student in Dubai. I think the biggest cost of all of this is definitely that social interaction, right? Like working from home, being stuck in a room for more than, you know, like more than majority of your day. Like, sure, I get out sometimes for about 20, 30 minutes, you know, for a break. I do laps around the neighborhood and then come back home. You know, not being able to just see another human face physically and talk to them so that I can, you know, be social is kind of the thing that uh, I'm still trying to get used to. Technology has been wonderful for me connecting with my family of origin. I am the oldest of seven children, and my family is all up in the Chicago area, which is about two hours away. And we have been more connected during this time than we have been it, during, you know, a regular non-quarantine time. We have been having a group text going. We have been having a Zoom happy hour each night. And it's actually been really great. At the time of me recording this, I'm about to start my third week of classes from home. At the beginning, I was really concerned about taking classes from home because I learn best in a collaborative environment. But I was one of the lucky ones in comparison to the rest of my peers, simply because uh, a lot of the courses that I've had to take to complete my majors this semester are seminar-based and are a lot smaller in size. So there's still a collaborative and hands-on element from home, despite the fact that I'm alone in my room staring at a computer. We will play more of these recordings in the next few episodes. I'm Ariel Zumros, and this is Reset. If you haven't subscribed to the pod yet, now's the time. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or in your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, please take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. And I read the reviews because I care. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at ADRS. You can also reach the Reset team by emailing reset at vox.com. That's where you should send those recordings, by the way. We publish episodes three times a week on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays. That means we'll be back on Tuesday. 
Later, nerds.